With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Good afternoon. Hey, hey, hey. This is Aisha, black girl from Eugene. It has been such a long time since I've spoken with you all. I want to say thank you so much for maintaining my platform by subscribing and uh, giving it a five-star rating so that we can boost this conversation uh, to the front of the line. Really appreciate all of you who have followed me this whole time and new followers. Welcome. Thank you. Um, The podcast has been an instrument for me to maintain really clarity and to release thoughts that I believe could help other people through the process of my life. And as a black woman living in high proximity to whiteness, um, I have a lot of experiences and a lot of uh, knowledge to share. So I welcome to my podcast and thank you for being here. Today, um, I have some musings and thoughts about raising biracial children. Um, I have three grandchildren at the moment, and they are biracial. I raise them. They're at, in my home 100% of the time. Now, I, I was literally just having a conversation over coffee with some, um, some women that I've met here, and we're all getting to know each other. And varying degrees of of white identity and a very nice group of women. We meet for coffee and we have very awesome conversations. We literally were just sitting for about four hours just talking about all the things. Um, and one of the conversations that we were having is about being black in all white spaces. And I have no qualm about speaking on that because it is my lived experience and I'm quite comfortable with that experience. I'm actually quite comfortable in a lot of areas that are um, anti-black. And when I say I'm comfortable in areas that are anti-black, it's not that I have internalized the idea that anti-blackness is comfortable. Don't get it twisted. What I'm saying is that I have become... A, you know, within that space, I recognize and have overstood how it processes and how it is displayed and how it is practiced. So therefore, I'm not surprised <laughs> by any of those pieces. So comfortable in my own skin, comfortable in my own direction and comfortable in my own um, uh, awareness of who I am in these spaces. So that's my life. And so when I was talking to the women and we were talking about this, this idea of, you know, just 
whiteness and blackness and social constructs and the ridiculousness of the bottom line of the situation being that, you know, again, a social construct, right? Um, and to those who benefit the community, the society, the structure, the systems that are in place to maintain that. Um, and so when we were talking about it, like we all have our lived experience and my experience as a black woman I had two very black parents. <laughs> so those of you who are black and who understand what I mean by very black parents is that there was never a question of their identity. There was never a question of where they came from or who, who, was, uh, who was responsible for what or who goes where or what. Black everything, right? Um, black grandmother in the house, black parents in the house, black mother and father in the house, black food in the house. That's how they were, both were raised, black aunties, you know, all the thing. So the cultural norms were very solid that were coming from a black consciousness. And in that space, um, that was obviously through culture and through norms. When you're raised by a black mother, when you're raised by a mother, um, the role of a nurturer, though the role of a nurturer is scientifically how culture is, is given, right? So, and practiced and, and taught and all those things. So, my cultural lens, regardless if I was raised in a white space, my cultural lens through my mother is black and was re, re-edified and, and reinforced by my father and my siblings. I was born in Oregon, which is a white space, but all the siblings above me, and I have seven, all the siblings above me, and I'm number five of seven. So there's two below me and, uh, and four above me. Is that right? Four or five above me. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, they're all born and have a lot of their lives also in black spaces uh, in St. Louis and um, moving to South America and those spaces. And when I came along, I was born in a white space. And my other country, other culture, other um, ethnic, ethnic exposure was Central America. So we have all this like multiculturalism in our family, but the consciousness is black. Um, so there's that. When I, th- which means me as a black mother, even though I live in high proximity whiteness, and that complicates my relationship uh, to my blackness. And when I say complicates it, it does not mean I am confused by it. Okay. I want to be very clear about that. It doesn't confuse me about anything in my black consciousness to be raised in proximity to whiteness because I was anchored strongly in black consciousness. So I was effectively being raised in a bicultural home. Outside my home, it was very, very white. Inside my home, it was very, very black. And I learned to navigate those two worlds because um, some of it mixes and most of it doesn't. And consciousness absolutely just, it's, it's not a, a mixing situation. So um, being bicultural lets it become a both and an and and have a strong understanding of how you can have two things at once, right? Two compo- two. Um, uh, what am I trying to say? To uh, what is the word I'm looking for? <laughs> uh, you guys are out there probably like telling me the word right now. And I cannot hear you. Um, to opposing 
perspectives um, and have uh, uh, and have an appreciation and live both of them at the same time. So um, there's that. Anyway, when I was when I as I was like talking to these ladies and having a good conversation, even like a week ago, even two weeks ago, um, three weeks ago, I started thinking about the way that I talk about racism on a constant basis, like, right? Because I mean, it's the work that I do. I am a DEI strategist. I help businesses strategize their everything, policy, practice, process, um, and create and cultivate a culture of belonging and inclusion. That is what I do. So not only for my work, but because I am a black woman, racism and race relations and how I relate to my race based on the social context of what I'm surrounded in in that moment is constant, right? And so as I was trying to explain this to these women and we were having this conversation, they're like, that is exhausting. And I was like, it's really quite second nature. Um, and, And at the same time, I'm raising children who are biracial. And they are biracial where their phenotype, the way that they look, one of them looks like he is probably not white in any way, right? He looks like he could be some version of an islander perhaps, or maybe he's just not white. You can just see that he's not white. And he does look like he could be light-skinned, a very light-complected black young boy. His brothers um, don't look as, their phenotype does not come across as a typical black phenotype. And it doesn't really come across as a typical phenotype of a mixed child. And I keep using typical because we all know we're not a monolith. Hopefully we know that. And that um, when we talk about blackness, it's very, very rarely in, in um, very rarely in alignment with skin color. So there's that. But uh, from my perspective anyway, so... Um, Though my other two boys really, really could look, could be mistaken as white um, or what people like to call spicy white, where they're not, they're, they're white, but you can tell they're not quite white, right? So that is how they, they present. And consciously, they're going to learn a black narrative and because they're being raised by me and I have... Uh, the you know I have my black culture like I said intact from the worldly multicultural d- dimension of the the diaspora the, the diaspora the global diaspora um, is how I relate to that so this conversation that I have with the boys and not only just the conversation but just the lived experience that they will have in their home will be in contrast to the experience they will have outside the home. Not to say that because they do not look phenotypically black, that they will not have an a othering experience because they will, um, they, like I said, they're not white by any means of the consciousness, by any means of movement, by any means of cultural norms, by expectations. They are not white. Um, so... But when they go out into the world, how the world will, tr- will experience them or treat them or, or have relationship with them will be different than what I have experienced in my life. 
even with me being highly light-skinned black woman, um, from a white perspective, people will say, oh, you, you won't have a racist experience. That's from a white perspective. Even if black folks look at, at me as a light-skinned woman and go, oh, you don't have the same experience. That's true. But it does not mean I don't have a racist experience. I am clearly black, whether I'm light-skinned or not. And in high proximity to whiteness, even being, and I'm air-quoting, accepted into white circles, there is a high level of abuse that happens on a constant basis, right? Um, so the, the whole oppression Olympics or, or the whole colorism Olympics, you know, of who gets it worse, depending on your skin tone, is very, very white-centered thought process. Abuse is abuse is abuse, and, uh, and that's what I'll say on that. But when I think about my children, when I think about my grandchildren, um, I sometimes even, like, second-guess myself on how much information that I should share with them because I want to almost see what their experience is. And at the same time, knowing very well that I cannot trust society to show them, well, to handle that curiosity, not to show them, but just to receive the curiosity in a responsible way. Um, Now, they're six and three, so... The idea of racism is literally beside, beyond them. They do not understand what I'm talking about. And I don't ex- try to explain racism in the silly ways that we understand it. Um, but what I do tell them, and like I, I even teach in my classes for parents that are raising black children, is that you never teach from fear. You never teach from fear. The truth of my children and the truth of my story is that, you know, Dealing with white people and white, you know, consciousness and white supremacy uh, culture in those ways is actually not where the pain comes from once you understand the dynamics. Like, it's almost like playing chess. Like, I see the move. So I'm not surprised by them. Disappointed by them? Yes. Um, Bored of them? Disgusted of them? (laughs) Um you know, uh, like really just kind of speechless by them, all of the things. Yes, that's all true. But when it comes down to like where the pain comes from is not, for me, is not from the, the, the relationship with white people or whiteness per, per se. It's really when, because of my light skin position that, other black people or other people of the global majority question my uh, question my ability or question my uh, devotion to our collective liberation. That is what's painful, um, and that's because I recognize whiteness in them, white supremacy thought process in them. They're qualifying my ability to relate to a struggle due to my light skin Um, and probably my diction, you know, I don't know. Anyway, it's all out there.
So when I think about my children, it's, that's the part for me is that I really, really, really want to make sure that they are so confident in their black consciousness that when they have the battle from their own community, that they do not question their, their uh, ability to speak to the liberation of all, all of the global majority because they are, in fact, a piece of it, right? Um, and to, to allow the idea that black is diminished because of white, it's like talking about colors. You're like blending colors on a canvas. We're talking, I am talking about consciousness. I am talking about global awareness. I am talking about his connection to his ancestors. And the white ancestry that he has is glorified and uh, glorified and really um, uh, justified in, in the system that will, because that will um, treat him poorly because he is black right? Because he is mixed with black. So I'm not going to, I, and I can't, I, it's not even in my ability to explain to him how his whiteness tries in almost every aspect to nullify his black consciousness. The black consciousness in this scenario is where the strength lies on the basis of humanity in my mind. So in the basis of humanity, to justify, quantify, and to actually uplift and focus on the connection to black consciousness will allow him to have forgiveness for white supremacy and what that conjunction will do for him. That, or for them, that is just my part. Their part will be however they decide to navigate this. However that navigation treats them, however the world treats them, um, how, whatever information they get back, um, you know, being, uh, and I'm air quoting, a mixed kid is not, a, wildly not a monolith, depending on who and how and why you are received, um, really does color how comfortable uh, this, this, and I'm air quoting, dual existence um, really does come out in the end. My goal for my biracial children is that they don't have any kind of they don't have any kind of question of value. That's all, right? And I want them to be able to speak on behalf of their the ancestral lineage that is speaking to them through me. And that's how I really see it. They were born to my family, to my daughter, they were raised by me. Therefore, what the, what the ancestors are asking me to do is uplift the black consciousness in these boys. And that's what I'll do. And whatever they decide to do later in their own discovery of their identity will be their own, but it will be informed by that, right? Anyway, I wanted to say it out loud. It's a, it's a conversation that, again, I am not a mixed race person. I have a mixed race brother. Um, and... I don't think that he actually, if you're listening to this podcast, let me know. Um, we've had this conversation so many times. Um, and I believe the relationship to identity, you know, is a complicated one. And I think shifts until you find what works for you in that scenario. But I would not speak on that experience because it's not mine. Um, I'm just witnessing what, as a protective caregiver 
and with the knowledge that I have and the ancestry connection that we that we share, um, to what degree that I will, uh, to what degree that I will um, teach a consciousness of togetherness, and that just is what I know, and that comes from my lineage, and um, you like let's say you in a black house, you gonna you gonna get black shit. That's what you gonna get. Okay, uh, so. The the kids are are amazing. They are super intelligent. They're super curious. Um, they don't question any of that until someone questions them. And for me being the one who's raising them, they will have a strong answer for whoever questions their identity in that way. Um, and I feel like if that's the case and they're confident in that answer, I've done my job. The rest is their own personal journey. So giving children as much information about who they are, the good and the bad, right? Talking with this group of women, you know, we started talking about white ancestry. And I said, you know, most white people want to, like, just avoid the idea that they were involved in enslavement. But, like, odds are you were, right? Um, No one jumps to being an abolitionist because within the white community, abolitionism was bad, too, so they were just like, we just weren't here. Like, we just showed up, you know, 1960 and we're all against it, right? So the, the important part is that when you're talking to your white children um, or your mixed children and you're a white uh, person, the caregiver is white, I think it's super important to recognize that you understand your history and you understand how the intersectionality of that history relates to society and how society will project an understanding that generally is just not true. Um, because that person, that child has the ability to, to lean into an identity of, of, um, that is true for them, an identity that is true for them. But if you don't give children information that you believe even historically, but you have to start to look at yourself in, in a cultural means. Culturally, what are you teaching your children? And how, when they, are, when they grow up not being sure of who, them, who they are and asking questions and you're going, well, I don't know how you didn't get it. Did you have conversations? Did you sit down and say, this is what we're doing? This is who we are. This is where we came from. These were the dark times and then this is what happened and this is how we understand things now, Right. Um, that gives children an anchoring. And if it's a child who is biracial and you can give history, but also understand the consciousness in which you are coming from, you have to understand that those biases and that internalized conversation is coming through in your cultural practices. So to open that up and allow, um, allow really about, allow the information to flow, allow the inability, like the vulnerability of not knowing. Like, I don't know what it will be like for them to grow up biracial. I have no idea. I'm definitely calling my brother in and being like, you know, what do you think? But he doesn't know either. It's, it's not him, right? And he, he wasn't raised by a black mother. He wasn't, but I'm going to, you know, reference, like come on in and help out 100%, right? But I can only give what I know. And when you are a white woman raising black children, you have to understand that 
in the societal balance of racism and race, the white part of you is already going to be showcased and probably showcased inaccurately, right? The problem with having whiteness as the primary identity is that it really takes out the validity of the black. And we're talking about social constructs of blackness. So, you know, there. So it's, you have to have a more conscious direction when, when having a relationship to racism and you have a black child, right? Um, I always find it really interesting when parents who have biracial children who, I, who present as white and they push a black narrative onto this child that's presenting as white and the child is going into society going, I don't understand it because they're not actually understanding that the, the pushing white or pushing black is like, again, a social construct. So it's really null and void about how the child looks. The child will have an experience based on society's impression of how they look. The consciousness of who they are tied to an ancestral lineage will give them two legs to stand on. They'll have a reference point that isn't society's projection of who they believe them to be. I hope that makes sense. No, it's a lot. <laughs> but, you know, like I said, uh, you know, some of, the, some of the, the deepest, deepest black scholars were, were light-skinned black and, and of mixed heritage, right? Not all, but we could name a few, right? The intersectionality of how society would see them if their mouth never opened I'm sorry, not the intersectionality, the, the perceived, the perceived um, social labeling that they would see without, if, they've never, if they never opened their mouth, is in direct contradiction to who they are consciously when they're tied to their black ancestry. That's just my observation. I have not done research on that. I have read lots of books on this. Um, I would love to probably drop some... Um, drop some labels in the, in the show notes. But I will say that it's just been a thought on my mind. And you know how I am. When the thought keeps coming back, I'm like, you know what? I think it's time to share on my podcast. Um, I think I have promised over and over again that I'm going to start doing this regularly again. <laughs> and I tell you what, people, grief is something else. And it's definitely not linear. So my best efforts are to come and share with you podcasts. Um, and I do have a couple guests. I think I said that before too, but these are different people. <laughs> um, and one is going to be based on I, this identity thing we just talked about. Um, this is a person who uh, is Latin and presents as white. And what, we definitely want to have that conversation with her. She was like, definitely want to have this conversation about just living this kind of double consciousness and, um, and, how, that, and how that shows up for her and what that really means. Um, we, I also have some, another uh, woman who is a monumental person um, who is leading the way in Oregon um, as a doula, and she is just an incredible person. Uh, and But we're going to talk about relationships. And so 
I just have to schedule these things out. I just got to make these things happen. So please stay tuned. Um, before they come on, you know you'll hear, you will hear more from me. And again, please, if you are enjoying my little conversations or my thought, my thought, my mind drops, or and you're learning from this, um, I have a couple requests. If you could please go ahead and subscribe to my channel and rate the podcast, and that way I can get more coverage. And of course, supporting my podcast through Patreon does allow me to maintain the podcast um, and the ability to spend more time uh, creating the podcast on a regular basis. $5 a month is something that goes a very long way. The other thing that I may not have said, I can't really remember, but um, I am holding a community conversation every two weeks on the Patreon platform. Um, great group of people get together and we have very um, encouraging and very, um, I'd say, community-based conversations about race. And it's a very encouraging atmosphere. So um, join us, would you? The next talk is October 30th. And like I said, it's on patreon.com forward slash black girl from Eugene underscore one. And it only takes $5 to join. And we would love to have you in our little community conversation. And other than that, you all, hey, we are almost finished with 2023. It has been a rough one. It's been a rough couple of years, but we are here. We are maintaining. And I, for one, am super proud of the community that we are continuing, that we continually grow. I do hear encouraging conversations. I do hear um, the, the squeakiness of courage coming through to say something that may have been uncomfortable, but people are starting to stand behind it. Um, I do hear it coming through. So I really, really want to give you all a big, big, big warm hug and say, even when it's tough, here we are and we're in here together. All right. Talk to you soon. It's Black Girl from Eugene. I'm out.